In the two most recent chapters in our study of John's Gospel, chapters 5 and 6, Jesus has been experiencing profound rejection. In chapter 5, Jesus had incensed the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem of Judea in the south by healing a man on the Sabbath day. So this guy had not been able to walk for 38 years. And Jesus heals the man and says, take up your mat and walk. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem of Judea in the south, all they could think about was he shouldn't be carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. And by the end of chapter 6, the crowds who had been following Jesus around Galilee in the north are now leaving Jesus or have now left Jesus en masse. So in chapter 5, he's experienced profound rejection in the south. By the end of chapter 6, he has experienced profound rejection in the north. And John chapter 7 and verse 5 summarizes the current situation for Jesus. Not even his brothers believed in him. So it's it's a low point in terms of Jesus' popularity. Last week, we saw that after telling his brothers that he wouldn't be going up to this feast with them at the same time as them, Jesus does go up to the feast later. This is the broad context of the verses we're looking at today. John chapter 7, verses 11 to 24. And verses 11 to 15 give us further context. We're informed in these verses that among the people of Jerusalem gathered for the feast, there was some sense of expectation and some popular level interest in Jesus. However, the Jews, that is the religious leaders, were so hostile toward Jesus that as verse 1 tells us, they were trying to kill him. And as verse 13 implies, they did not even want to hear Jesus' name mentioned For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him, implying that there was something to be afraid of, even just mentioning the name Jesus. So there is some wondering, some speculation, some confusion, and some interest surrounding Jesus in Jerusalem of Judea in the south. Jesus is traveling from Galilee in the north down there. And this is the situation that Jesus was traveling into. That's all outlined for us, introduced to us in verses 11 to 15. And that theme of wondering who Jesus might be and speculating and debating about who Jesus might be is developed through the rest of the chapter. We're going to touch on that theme only a little bit this morning, and then, Lord willing, we'll spend more time exploring that theme further next week. But of primary concern to us this morning is Jesus' teaching in verses 16 to 24. In verse 14 it says, About the middle of the feast Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Or how is it that this man knows his letters, quite literally? It wouldn't have been a big thing for a Jewish man to know how to read and write. So when it says, How is it that this man knows his letters? It doesn't literally mean... How is it that he knows how to spell and put together coherent sentences and so on and so forth? 
The idea is, how is it that this man um, uh, is knowledgeable if he's never been a formal proselyte of a rabbi? And this word that the ESV renders as marvel, the Jews therefore marveled, isn't actually a positive thing. The sense of this statement is they were scandalized, they were shocked. How is it that he presumes to go up into the temple and teach when he's never been a formal disciple of a rabbi? That understanding is confirmed by verse 21 where Jesus says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. It's the same word. So they weren't obviously marveling about the healing of the invalid by the pool in a positive sense. Like, wow, this is amazing. How could he have done this? It's more like they were shocked and scandalized that he would do it and do it on the Sabbath day and tell the man to pick up his bed. So marveling here doesn't have a good connotation. So they're marveling and they're like, how, how is he teaching in the temple when he's not really a teacher? We know he's not really a teacher because he's never been a formal disciple or proselyte of a rabbi. So how is it that this man is now sitting in the seat of authority in the temple teaching us when he is not a studied Jew? Jesus begins his answer in verse 16. That's all contextual. The two things that we want to note about Jesus' teaching. The two headings of under which we might categorize all of Jesus' teaching. Well, I'm not going to give them to you right now, so let me say, let me say this. There are two headings. <laughs> the first is this. Jesus' teaching is true. Jesus asserts that in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but Him who sent me. This is a response to their marveling. So they're shocked, they're scandalized that Jesus would presume to be teaching in the temple. Sent me, namely God. 
In verse 18, Jesus asserts that the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. This is a contrast between false teachers on the one hand, who are not from God and hence speak on their own authority, and Jesus who is from God and speaks with God's authority on the other hand. And again, this is a statement about truth. Essentially, Jesus asserts here that his teaching is true because he is from God and he is speaking with God's authority. If a blind man denies the existence of the Son because he has never seen it, does that objectively negate the Son? The existence of the Son? Of course not. It does not follow just because a blind man cannot perceive the Son that the Son does not exist. Likewise, if even the whole world of blind men failed to recognize the truth of Jesus' teaching, failed to recognize the source of Jesus' teaching, nevertheless, Jesus' teaching would remain true. So the first thing that Jesus asserts is His teaching is true. That He does have authority to be teaching in the temple because He is from God. But then Jesus moves on to explain why He is experiencing such profound rejection if indeed he is from the Father and his teaching is true. After all, if he is sent by God, that he has authority to teach in the temple and he's teaching true things as one sent by God, then shouldn't people be embracing him? Shouldn't people be accepting him? Jesus moves on to teach about why he is experiencing such profound rejection. He makes the case that anyone whose intentions are sincere will be able to recognize that his teaching is true. Anyone whose intentions are sincere will be able to recognize that his teaching is true. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What is the implication here? If someone does not know whether Jesus' teaching is from God, or if someone decides that Jesus' teaching is not, in fact, from God, then it shows that that person's will is not to do God's will. Both sides of the coin are at play here. If someone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether Jesus is speaking on his own authority. Just work backwards and reverse the statement. If someone does not know whether the teaching is from God or whether he is speaking on his own authority, then it must mean that his will is not to do God's will. So all of the people not too sure about Jesus in verses 11 to 15, all of this speculation this confusion. All of these people are indicted here as not genuinely seeking to do God's will. Jesus teaches here a 
general principle applicable in His day and age and in ours. Jesus is teaching here that no one is a genuine seeker who rejects Jesus. This passage reveals that the rejection of Jesus and His message or professed uncertainty even when faced with sufficient data. Obviously, we're not talking about people who, you know, who is, who is Jesus? I never even heard the name before. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about in this case. But when somebody is familiar with the claims of Jesus, familiar with the data about who Jesus is, and they profess uncertainty, I don't know. There's not enough data. Or somebody who draws the conclusion that Jesus is not from God and that His teaching is not true. This passage reveals that those positions that people might take are not rooted in a neutrality which simply requires further evidence. But rather that the rejection of Jesus and His message is rooted in an inward bent away from doing God's will. What if I told you that people who hear the gospel but won't come to Jesus in repentance and faith do not genuinely desire to do God's will? Unbeliever, what if I told you that the reason at the end of the day that you have not come yet to faith in Jesus Christ is because you are not sincere? Many unbelievers tell themselves that they really want to do God's will, but that they're just intellectually unconvinced. In spite of being, supposedly being open-minded, and neutral, and unbiased. Many believers tell themselves that their unbelieving family members and friends are open-minded, and neutral, and unbiased but just not intellectually persuaded as yet. Many tell themselves that the problem of unbelief is rooted not in moral rebellion, but in intellectual objection. That's the way many people think of unbelief. People are open-minded, at least many people are, unbiased, Neutral, and if they just had the right information, if we could just bring the strongest argument, if we could just evangelize the right way, if churches would just do things the right way, then all of these neutral, unbiased, open minded seekers of God would come in faith to Christ Jesus. That's the way many people think. That's the way many people think of themselves as individuals, aside from those out there. Many people think, I'm not a Christian because I just have yet to be intellectually persuaded. I am prepared to go wherever the evidence leads, but I just haven't seen the evidence as yet. I mean, yeah, people have talked to me about the gospel. You know, I've read some of the Bible. I'm familiar with the claims of Jesus, but... 
you know, I'm open-minded, I'm unbiased, I'm neutral, but I'm just not quite there yet. Many people tell themselves that and many people think of unbelief like that. But Jesus here does away with such wishful thinking. Look at what he says. If anyone wants to do God's will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, verse 17, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Work that backwards now. If somebody does not know whether Jesus' teaching is from God or whether he speaks on his own authority or obviously implicitly if someone rejects Jesus' message then what does that mean? It means that their will is not to do God's will. It's just the other side of the coin. Mankind ever since the fall of Adam into sin, has an inward bent away from God so that our will is not to do God's will. We do not naturally want to do God's will. People are not neutral and unbiased and open-minded. We naturally want to not do God's will. None of us keep God's law. More than that, we are enemies of God. Until one identifies with and sides with Christ Jesus against the world, each man and woman, boy and girl, is part of a world which hates Jesus. As Jesus himself taught just a few verses earlier in John chapter 7 and verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And as we've seen, the world in John is the unbelieving world. That unbelieving system or culture of mankind that is against God. This world would prefer that Jesus was dead rather than alive. This is the world which sought to kill Jesus so long ago. And this is the same world today that wished Jesus was still in the grave. And this is the world today that wishes that Jesus was a myth. And that there was no Lord who had claim on our lives. A world which would prefer the non-existence of Jesus rather than the rule and reign of Jesus. The world hates Jesus. And unbelievers are part of that world. As we saw last week, you are either part of that world hating Jesus or you're identified with Jesus siding with Jesus testifying against the world there is no in between this is what Jesus is 
explaining to his brothers, you're part of the world. Which means the world cannot hate you because you're part of it. But the world hates me because I'm not part of it and I testify against it that his works are evil. We saw last week that when believers come to identify with Jesus and side with Jesus, we are no longer part of the world. We're in the world but not of it. And we, together with Jesus, testify that its works are evil. Unbelievers are not open-minded, neutral, unbiased. They are part of a world which hates Jesus. If people hear the gospel, that they have the data, but they profess to not be able to know whether it's true or not, or they reject it, it shows that their will is not to do God's will. That they are still subject to that corruption and that inward bent away from God and away from God's will. They are still in the world which hates Jesus, how do you feel hearing this? Incensed? Offended? Dumbfounded? In denial? This is essentially what Jesus says to the crowd in verse 19, isn't it? None of you keeps the law. Right? Which is just another way of saying there's that inward bent. Right? You're all in sin. That inward bent. None of you keeps the law. And furthermore, he says, why do you seek to kill me? Isn't this basically just what Jesus says? Doubling down on this principle that he's illuminating and explaining to them. And look at how the crowds respond. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? This is basically... The exact same thing that people say nowadays when we assert that unbelievers are actually hostile towards God and His Christ. Isn't it? You have a demon. We are not against Jesus. We're neutral towards Jesus. No one is seeking to kill Him. You have a demon. We are open-minded people. You have a demon. We are unbiased. No one hates Jesus. No one is against Jesus. But Jesus explains his position. And he reasons like this to them. Moses, whose disciples these people claim to be, commanded that circumcision be done on the eighth day from birth. Now if that eighth day happened to fall on a Sabbath day, The Jews understood that it was good to do the work of circumcision on the Sabbath day. Now, here's Jesus' logic. If an improvement to one part of a man's body, bringing it into alignment with God's good purposes, was permissible on the Sabbath, then surely an improvement to a man's whole body, bringing it into alignment with God's good purposes, would also be permissible on the Sabbath. You see here the inconsistency of the hating world. Jesus uses the phrase, making a man well. 
in verse 23. If you can make one part of a man's body well on the Sabbath day, why can't you make a man's whole body well on the Sabbath day? Remember that this is what everyone was upset about in John chapter 5. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. And this is why the masses eventually were persuaded to yell together with them, crucify him, crucify him. Not necessarily this very incident, though for the, the Jewish leaders this was the spark of it all. But this kind of irrationality, finding things to stick on Jesus which were irrational. There was no rational reason to crucify Jesus. But there was irrational public outrage about Jesus. And Jesus is pressing them here on their irrationality. Look, how come you can do a thing to one part of a person's body on the Sabbath day, but you can't do a thing to a person's whole body on the Sabbath day? Why are you so offended by this when you allow that? The irrational public outrage in Jesus' day and age shows and demonstrates that people aren't unbiased, neutral, open-minded toward Jesus. Rather, it shows and demonstrates that their will is actually not to do God's will. If it was their desire to do God's will then they would see that healing a man on the Sabbath is no less proper than circumcising a male child on the Sabbath. This is the point of what seems like an excursus. This is the connection here. Jesus is pressing them on their irrational hatred of Him and showing them, you are not as unbiased as you think. You you are angry with me and your irrational anger with me shows that you are not unbiased. If you were unbiased, then surely you would follow the logic and not be angry with me. Likewise, there is an irrational public outrage in our day and age which shows and demonstrates that people are not unbiased, neutral, and open-minded toward Jesus. Rather, it shows and demonstrates that their will is not actually to do God's will. If it was their desire to do God's will, they would see that saying, Jesus is the truth, is no more bigoted than saying Jesus is not the truth. If it was their desire to do God's will, they would see that judging the beliefs of non-Christians to be false is no more intolerant than judging the beliefs of Christians to be false. If it was the desire of unbelievers in our day and age to do God's will, and they were unbiased, neutral, open-minded... They would consistently follow their own rules and see that you cannot rationally and consistently claim tolerance on to be on your side and yet act intolerantly toward Christians. 
they cannot rationally and consistently claim that we are bigots for saying they are wrong while excusing themselves of bigotry for saying that we are wrong. These are just a couple of examples of the irrational public outrage in our day and age against Christianity, against Jesus, against His claims. They show and they demonstrate the principle taught us in our passage today. Unbelievers are not unbiased, neutral, and open-minded toward Jesus. But rather, they desire not to do God's will. And that is what keeps them from recognizing the teaching of Jesus to be true and of God. Listen, it is a moral deviancy which leads to the suppression of the truth. Not a neutral commitment to going wherever the evidence may lead, which leads to the rejection of Jesus and His claims. It is moral deviancy and not intellectual, um, a dearth of intellectual evidence which leads to a rejection of Jesus and His claims. So to review where we've been so far, first, Jesus asserts that His teaching is true. Whether or not anyone recognizes it or not, His teaching is true. Second, He asserts that anyone whose intentions are sincere will be able to recognize that His teaching is true. If anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know. If He doesn't know, implicitly, it must mean that His will is not to do God's will. So the first point, Jesus' teaching is true, is a statement about truth. The second point Anyone whose intentions are sincere will be able to recognize that his teaching is true. This is a statement related to epistemology, which is the study of how or by which means we may know the truth, our perception of it. As a human race alienated from God by sin, our failure to recognize the truth about Christ is not due fundamentally to a lack of information, but to a bent away from God. To properly know and recognize truth, we must come to have our hearts properly oriented toward doing God's will. Therefore, as Jesus says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The sense of this is do not make a superficial judgment, but rather draw your conclusions after a thorough investigation. By way of analogy to illustrate this, imagine a man goes to QEH, to the emergency room, with several of the signs and symptoms of a heart attack chest pain or discomfort, pain or discomfort in any other area of the upper body, shortness of breath, weakness, dizziness or nausea, or pardon me, dizziness or lightheadedness, 
nausea or vomiting, sweating, and heightened anxiety. Now let's imagine that the doctor looks at him, asks him what he had for dinner, asks if he leads a relatively active lifestyle, and then says, well, you're pretty healthy, but your dinner was very acidic. My guess is this is just heartburn or acid reflux. He's judging merely by appearances and not with right judgment. That's the sense of what Jesus is saying in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In the spiritual realm, as well as in the medical realm, if we are to get the right diagnosis, then we must not make superficial judgments, but thorough investigations. And after thorough investigation by Jesus, the great physician, the diagnosis is that unbelievers do not have a primarily intellectual problem, but a primarily moral problem. It is not a matter of the head so much as it is a matter of the heart. The unbeliever's failure to recognize the truth about Christ is not due fundamentally to a lack of information, but to a bent away from God. If your desire, unbeliever, was to do God's will, if your will was to do God's will, you would know. That's what Jesus says right here. Verse 17. If your will was to do God's will, you would know. If your brother's will was to do God's will, he would know. If your uncle's will or your aunt's will was to do God's will, they would know. Your grandparents, your co-workers, if their will was to do God's will, they would know. The goal here is not condemnation but salvation. And the first step in a successful treatment is an accurate diagnosis. We should not act like Christians are neutral just because maybe they're not flying upside down pentagrams on flags in front of their homes. We shouldn't reason that therefore the absence of an antichrist flag means they're neutral. That would be judging by appearances. It may not be immediately apparent from appearances that the unbeliever is hostile toward Christ. But look a little deeper and judge with right judgment. Unbeliever, don't act like God hasn't given you enough evidence. It's all right here. If you are sincerely trying to do God's will, you actually want to know the right teaching. It's right here. If your will is to do God's will, here's God's will. If your will is to do God's will, read this with an open mind, unbiased, and you will come to Christ Jesus in faith. If you read this and you don't come to Christ Jesus in faith... Be assured 
It's not because you're open-minded and unbiased and neutral towards God and this is defective. Be assured that if you read this and you don't know whether it is from God or from man, it is because your will is not to do God's will. That's what Jesus teaches in John seven seventeen. A thorough investigation of mankind shows us that our primary problem as human beings, which leads us to reject Christ and reject His gospel, is not an intellectual one, but a moral bent away from God. So unbeliever, don't settle for a superficial diagnosis of your state, which perhaps you have given yourself, you've self-diagnosed. You've went on webmd.com of spiritual things, and now you're pretty sure you know what's wrong with you. And you've given yourself a superficial diagnosis. I am neutral. I'm unbiased. I just need more evidence. Don't settle for that. That's the wrong diagnosis. Let Jesus, the physician of the souls, diagnose you. And what he says is wrong is that your desire is not to do God's will. That's why you haven't yet come. Again, the goal is not condemnation, but salvation. Treatment. But the first step in treatment is an accurate diagnosis. So look a little deeper and judge yourself with right judgment, not by appearances. Repent of your hostility toward Christ. Lay down your arms and come in faith. For us who are believers, as we think about the task of evangelism, as we think about the state of our loved ones, may this drive us to prayer. That God would work in the hearts of our unbelieving friends and family members. Shining in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of His Son. That God would give them the new birth. That they might see and enter the kingdom of heaven. And no longer suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Would we go to them with the gospel. Laying the preparatory work by explaining to them the the death and the extent and the gravity of their sin and their utter lostness apart from Christ Jesus and holding out to them the hope of mankind, Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners.